Hello, and welcome to our fifth episode of the Thank You and Good Night podcast. My name is Julia. And I'm Emily. And we're here today to unpack all that is Rose Weissman. We have a lot of thoughts. We're going to talk about her strong feminine character and how she utilizes her femininity ultimately to be in a position of power um, and really make her presence known in the Weissman and the greater New York community. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit about Rose's background and how she really became the woman that she is. And we're going to explore a little bit about the period in which Rose was in Paris, because this hasn't been something that's really been opened up about. And we think it's a little bit interesting that she studied art at the interwar period period of time, where there was a lot of interesting things that were happening. Spoiler alert, she's probably a surrealist. We're also, fair warning, potentially going to get into a fight because we have very different opinions on how she views and supports her daughter's career. So with that warning, we're going to get right to it. And let's take it away. In our first topic of discussion, we're going to press a little bit about how Rose really makes her voice heard in the household. And Emily, you have some interesting perspectives, particularly on how she wields her anger and frustration to really get people to listen to her. So if you want to start this off, by all means. Sure. So one of the things I think is most interesting about Rose generally is she spends so much of the time we see her in the first season supporting people. Like, she gets mad and she gets angry, but at the end of the day, she grins and she bears it, right? She supports Midge by taking her in, even though she wants Midge to get back with Joel, right? She does everything she can to make Midge as comfortable as possible until she can get back together with Joel, up to and including blackmailing the super about an affair he's having in the building to store Midge's stuff right? I feel like that's a super important detail we're exposed to super early on with Rose Weissman. This is a woman who has enough social clout and knowledge to know who is having an affair with whom, when, for how long, and knows how to use that information in order to get what she wants, which I feel like is a super telling detail. This is a woman who doesn't just have a brain inside her head, which we have seen from the show up until this point, but is probably a master tactician. Which is important because, as I will talk about later, she really knows how to use when she wants to manipulate someone for her own purposes. And I don't mean manipulate in like a nasty kind of way of manipulate. I mean like setting the pieces up on the chessboard to best benefit her and her family. A lot of what Rose does is really for the benefit of her family, right? She manipulates people at Columbia for Abe. She manipulates the super for Midge, right? It very much is from a perspective of, I'm doing this for my family. It's not necessarily that she's self-obsessed in her way that she works either. But again, we see a lot of this support, right? We see the Bell Lab support. We see what she does for the dinner with the Rosenthal's or Blumenthal or whoever the name of the professor who is supposed to be coming to dinner. Insert Jewish name. (laughs) Yeah, insert random divorce lawyer she doesn't realize is a divorce lawyer. 
And that's where this kind of, the way that she uses anger kind of comes to the fore. We see how supportive she is of everything Abe's doing in Abe's career. And then he brings home a divorce lawyer. And she throws what I'm going to lovingly refer to as a temper tantrum. Like, I could say a lot worse things about it. But she stomps her foot and threatens to kill him and calls him a whore. I mean, not a whore, but a pimp. But, like, she is beyond livid. To the point where the next morning she literally says, I could kill you. Right? Before he drops the bomb about Joel came back and no one told her. And it's the moment where he's already made the decision, as we mentioned in the last episode, to break the contract about what their marriage is supposed to be. But it's the moment she becomes aware it's been broken. Not just by him, but by her daughter, who she thought was as close to her even after the breakup as she was before. It's really the first moment we see Rose truly understand that this bomb has gone off in her household and they all left her in the wake. And she's left alone. And she is beyond angry, right? We see her walk out and we don't see her again until she shows up late to Temple. One of the things we learn about Rose Weissman later in the show, we don't necessarily know it at this point we see her for the first time in the temple, is just how much pride and place she takes in their standing in that community, in that particular religious community. So when she chooses to blow up, and she blows up, dropping the F word amongst other profanities, in, in temple, in the middle of a service, at her daughter and her husband, she is choosing the specific moment of her power, right? What she, as the member of the household, most tied to the performance of their religion in that community, which is most clearly tied to their position of power within the Jewish Upper West Side community. She's specifically wielding her anger at the moment where it coincides with the biggest amount of power she has. She's choosing to blow up her world for them to understand just how mad she is. She's stopped supporting. She's not supporting what he's doing. She's not supporting what Midge is doing. She is choosing in a place that is so defined by her conscious efforts to define them and support them to withdraw the support. And then she runs off to Paris and physically removes herself from the equation to make them realize how horrible life would be without her doing everything to support them. It's not just her love and affection that they're desperately in need of, but it's their, it's how much she controls their lives, how much she helps prep things, how much she makes sure that their social lives are organized and he has people outside of work and that he can make these connections to move up in the world, how much Midge relies on her mother to take care of the children and everything else and rubs their faces in it when they get to Paris. It's this little tiny manipulative detail we see where she's aware at this point that they've gone off the deep end. For them to come to Paris, she knows how big of a deal it is for that. And she's aware that they still haven't made that final leap into understanding. And so she decides she's going to use her anger, right? to manipulate them into that final step, to push them into that final step, which is the grand performance in the apartment and the grand performance at the cafe, which ends with that fight they have between Midge and Rose at the end of the first episode of the second season, where Midge says, he's your husband, you made commitments, you just can't leave him. And Rose goes, look who's talking. And it's the first time we see someone really stand up to Midge about why she's so angry and why she's having these issues. You know, because Abe, at the end of the first episode, or end of the first season, 
goes on the whole thing about you're not allowed to be happy because you're a typhoon who's laid waste to everyone and everything around us, right? But he caves when she starts crying. Midge starts having a similar kind of fight with her mother and her mother doesn't back down. She throws the steel wall up in her face and goes, look who's talking. Like, look at what you've done in the name of leaving your husband. I'm not asking him to leave me. I'm asking him to realize what he's done to me. And she's using her anger in a conscious, deliberate way to make her voice heard. It's these moments when she needs to make her family realize just how horribly they've treated her and how much they've left her behind because they've relied too heavily on her support, where she uses anger to drive it. And it's, it's telling that it's anger when it's with her family and it's something else when it's with other people, right? Because we see throughout the rest of the show, she's incredibly good at getting what she wants. She blackmails the super. She does whatever she does to get Jimmy his job back. She sends the jam multiple times to keep Abe from getting sabbaticals because Abe is horrible to work with, right? She gets the information out of Astrid in like 30 seconds flat, right? She gets the rabbi to come back. She manipulates matchmaking. Even that takes a level of manipulation. Right. And that's what I was coming to, right? She is a matchmaker. Like, that is her profession. What she's going to go into is literally manipulating everyone into relationships. The sheer amount of tactical knowledge it takes for that. But we get all these references, right? The garden club, the way she throws Imogene's baby shower spontaneously. I know that we look at what women in the 1950s did and think of housewives as a very narrow choice and a very narrow life. And for a lot of women, it was. And for a lot of women, it isn't a choice women have in places where they can choose to do other things. And I know we talk a lot about Rose buys into traditional femininity, and she does. I'm not saying that she doesn't. But I think one of the interesting things that Rose shows throughout what she does and how independent she is and how she is not a pushover and how she makes her voice heard and it's her will that is really supporting this family and moving them forward in the world whether it be through her money or her choices or her anger or whatever is this idea that the politics of the social life in the 1950s was an important thing that the world needed women in those role like families needed women in those roles that was as much of an importance for the breadwinner as the person making the money right she got him to keep his job she got him promotions separate from the money she was personally bringing into the family through her trust fund right she was bringing in money into that household she was bringing success into that household who's to say she didn't get her children into the colleges they got into right who's to say all of these things and it's, I think it's a reflective of, we don't consider that a feminist path. We don't consider it a life where women can make choices. I know that we as a society look on that period of time as really trapping women. But I think Rose is this interesting example of history of showing you there was a politic to it. There was an art to it. That it wasn't necessarily staying home and raising children and being forced into the submissive role. That there were women who lived this life, who chose this life, and made it something more meaningful than I think we'd expect. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting how you bring up all these different areas in which she really does make this kind of life uh, for herself, despite the constraints that you know society does often put on women, right? Like, she doesn't have a 
formal, proper job. And she's a little bit fed up with the fact that Midge does kind of have a job. Like, for instance, when she's working the makeup counter at B. Altman. Um, But at the same time, she has an element of independence, which is so refreshing to see from a woman of her time period. Um, And I just want to touch a little bit on other areas of manipulation that you didn't quite bring up, but like fit into this narrative really, really perfectly. So in particular, I'm thinking about the time, like the times where she thinks that, you know, Miriam is just going to quit doing comedy based on, you know, whether it be the silent treatment, um, as you described it, kind of like temper tantrums. She thinks that she's able to manipulate Miriam into giving into her demands in that sense too and you know the fact that she throws in Miriam's face that you know she doesn't want her life to be represented on stage that's like a peak guilt trip you know and I understand where she's coming from that she doesn't want to be made the butt of a joke but it's the peak guilt trip as a way to convince her daughter to stop doing what she's doing or to just, you know, not pursue comedy in the way that she's choosing to pursue comedy. And I was going to say, I, we've fought over this fight multiple times and it will come up later in this episode. I'm sure (laughs) I personally view it as the second one. I think by the time they have that fight, Midge is begging her mother to support her comedic career and is saying like, it's you either do or you don't at this point, I'm done trying. And I think what Rose is saying is, I'm never going to understand it. I would prefer if you didn't include me in it. So I think it's the second. I don't think it's you have to stop comedy. She's manipulating her out of comedy. I think she's trying to manipulate her to stop making her the butt of a joke. For but sure. Continue. For sure. Um, but not only that, but I'm thinking about like the manipulation that she utilized when she was in Oklahoma, too. Another perfect example about how if she does not get what she wants, she kind of throws this temper tantrum, which ends up having these consequential um, effects on other people around her. So, for instance, you know, in a way, she talks in the 3-8 fight about how Abe blew up her life, but she also blew up their life as they knew it because she was the one who was bringing in the steady income for their household. The reason why they could afford the lavish lifestyle that they could afford was because she was the one who was fronting the costs and really making the payments and doing the bookkeeping and doing what needed to be done in the ways a traditional housewife would of keeping records, but she was the source of the income. Except and, for the fact that she was secretly funding exactly. And and so, you know, all of this, like, she goes and she throws the temper tantrum. And I don't know if she thought that that type of manipulative tactic would work, that it would get her a seat amongst all the boys, for for lack of a better word, because that's genuinely what it is. It's a a little boys club. she thought it would maybe buy but a her- member of the family who doesn't eat paste. Exactly. Well, then we did have an actual little little boy sitting on this. Yes, that's why I make that. Yeah, joke. I love that. But joke. it's someone who doesn't eat paste. But but you know what I mean? Like like I, I do see what you're saying. If, if she I don't thought- think that was a manipulative tantrum, though. I, I get what you're saying with the whole a your father blew up my life. I think what happened truly in that situation was Abe was unhappy and blew up their lives 
because they lost their home because of what Abe did. I think she realized watching him be that unhappy and realizing how much happier he seemed when he was free of it, that at a certain point, it's not worth making the consequences. It's not worth paying the piper. And I think that's what she says to Midge is, I I think the whole, this is an area in which you and I are in perfect agreement, how precarious a woman's life is when it's dependent on the whims of a man. I think she's also referring to the men in her family. I don't think the man per se is Abe. I think what she's saying, right, is, okay, Joe blew up your life and you've made your own decisions that have blown up the lives of everyone else around you. You have to take ownership and responsibility for what you say on stage. Joel has made you a comedian, but what you say and who you mock is your individual choice. I think Rose is similarly saying, Abe made me realize it's not worth paying the piper anymore. My life was precariously placed on Abe keeping our house and me keeping the whims of my selfish asshole family happy. And I think that's what she's saying is I'm, I am taking ownership of the fact that we are stuck in this house, right? It's up to me to get our life back. It's a recognition of like, to your point, yeah, she's the reason they're in that hole to a certain extent. You know, I mean, Abe quitting his jobs income. definitely doesn't help, but she was the one we know that was footing the bill. <laughs> well, had she kept the trust fund, they could have afforded to live somewhere other than the Maisel's apartment. Exactly. Right. Like, point blank, full stop. They're in, they're in the Maisel house because of it. And she takes the responsibility on getting their life back. She owns it. Which, Even though she isn't saying it's me. She's, there is an ownership of it. Right. Which you can tell based on the fact that she is willing to start monetizing her uh, matchmaking abilities. But that kind of brings me to my last point that I wanted to hit on about manipulation. Um, Just in terms of like this, this sense of matchmaking, you know, she's the way she confronts Benjamin at the hospital. He's already backed into a corner because he's at a place of work. Right. So she goes to his place of work where she knows she's about to have an uncomfortable conversation um, and unload information or rather elicit information from him about what went wrong between he and Midge. And to be confronted at work like that is a bit startling. You know, it would take anyone out of their element, especially when that person is about to go into surgery and they're like in a totally different mental headspace, you know, than than thinking about the woman who broke their heart. Um, And so to me, that also strikes me kind of in this category of manipulation. She didn't do it just once, but she did it twice. And again, to, to the end where I, I posed the question before, I don't know if like she thought that the manipulative manipulative tactic would get him to concede, to have a conversation with her. It surely worked in that favor, but not in the way that she wanted the conversation to go, I'm sure. Um, so I guess just the extent of her manipulation, right? We have elements where her manipulative tactics work to get her end goal accomplished. But then there are other instances where I think, because 
my take on Oklahoma is perhaps, you know, that she thought maybe it would win her a seat at the table. And my take with Benjamin is that she thought maybe it would get her him to go speak to Midge and then they would be able to work through the problems because we do know that Rose wants Midge to be with a man. To me, it's just like there are also these elements of fallout where her manipulative tactics do not work. And then in light of those manipulative tactics not working, she realizes that she has to pursue a different path to achieve those ends. See, I see the Benjamin conversations differently. I think, like her daughter, there is a lack of self-awareness as to necessarily the consequences of her actions. I do not think that is a Midge-only trait. And I know I've been critical of Midge for that in the past. And I am fully aware. I think Rose and Abe have the same thing. I think the two of them oftentimes find themselves where they can't see past their nose. They're all sheltered. They're all very, very sheltered. They're all incredibly sheltered people. And I'm, I'm not... So I'm saying, I think... I think... Rose genuinely feels awful the first time she goes to talk to Ben to Benjamin. We have not seen a Rose Weissman that nervous ever. Not when she goes and talks to her family, not when she deals with the fallout of her family, not when she's in Paris. That is truly as nervous as we've ever seen her. I think after the conversation she has in the tea room, where it's been pointed out to her that she actually should have like I think she feels like a failure. She set up all of these relationships and all of these marriages and the one that she couldn't get to work was her daughter's. And I think she feels bad. And I think it's a gen. I think she genuinely wanted to apologize to him. I, 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 and I think the second conversation is her making it up. I think it's her having a new renewed confidence in her ability. And it's like, okay, that was the right kind of weird. Here's your, here, go make a life, go be happy. I don't think she sees it's incredibly hurtful to Benjamin, that it's harmful to Midge, and he's probably going to go get angry with Midge over it, that he's not going to see that it's a true mea culpa. Midge isn't going to see it's a mea culpa. I think it is a mea culpa from Rose. I don't think she's being manipulative. I, I don't think there is an agenda here other than she's trying to assuage her own conscience. And to that extent, I think it's, I think it's reflective of her blindness. I think that's fair, too. I mean, that's a fair assessment. I'm not saying I agree, but I think that's a fair assessment of the situation because... Well, we have very different views of this character. We do, Yes, we fundamentally disagree on just Rose as a character in general. But but to that end, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying. And, and I feel like that could be a valid explanation of it, for sure. Um, especially given, you know, just the sheltered nature of that family at large and the apple does not fall far from the tree at all so midge had to get it from somewhere and i think she got it from both of her parents i but anyway that's that's kind of how i see that but yeah and i mean we say manipulation and clearly in some parts it is the true sense of like manipulative nature but i i also mean it in the sense of politicking i think she is a politician in the sense of like she is the queen of the upper west side like we see that in the catskills she knows everyone knows everyone's business and that's a real skill like a true bow down kind of skill 
And it's incredibly performative. And we know it's performative because if you watch the way she interacts, and this is why the acting on this show is just so incredible. If you watch the way she interacts with everyone in the Catskills versus the way she interacts with her family, you can tell that it's fake and it's forced. It's a fake smile. It's a forced handshake. It's a forced politeness, right? It's a fake laugh. It's real when she's sitting there gossiping and training barbs with her children and her husband. And to a certain extent with the Maisels. It's not when she's sitting in the beauty parlor. It's calculating. It's cold. It's what can I get out of here? What can I get out of here? I think she is inherently an antisocial person who realizes the only way she's going to live a life of meaning, which I think Rose refuses to live a life that she doesn't define in some capacity. The only way for her to do that is if she grabs this thing that she's allowed to have by the horns and runs it. You know, I think she is very very much a woman born in the wrong time agreed i think that's part of the reason why she has so much tension in a fight with her daughter is because i think there is a jealousy of my daughter can do things i never could right agreed i think she wanted to truly be an artist i think she being the practical person she is based on the conversation we see her have in the third episode of the second season realized there was never going to be a way it was going to work and mm-hmm. so she gave it up and came home and got married because that's mm-hmm. what she was supposed to do. Only she married, and this goes back to the conversation we were having in the age episode, question mark, right? We don't know how they met. We don't know when they met. We don't know what job Abe had. He clearly wasn't a tenured professor at the time they were married. No. He probably nope. wasn't really a professor at the time they were married. He was probably a grad student. Mm-hmm. He probably was a communist radical grad student. And here was this woman coming from this family with money who knew she could get money and so didn't have to marry for money in order to get security, mm-hmm. who probably was drawn to this weird man who I love Abe, but he's very eccentric. Yep. So is she. I mean, to, to be fair, so is she. Who complimented her eccentricities because she's not, I mean, again, I love Rose, but she's not a normal human being. Right? Mm-hmm. Who saw that, like, this could actually work. Who saw someone who was going to treat her as an equal and is, was going to intellectually challenge her. Mm-hmm. And I think she decided it wasn't settling. And I, I, I think that, not necessarily saying here's another example of a woman behind the throne. But I think, you know, as we talked about in the earlier episode with Abe, I do think a lot of his career trajectory has been based on your career is my career. And it takes them until the third season to realize that. And I think that's why she's so happy at the end of Here We Go, Rosie, is it's finally become your career is my career. That's right. Even when he's out on his own the most. Mm-hmm. Because that isn't her world. I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. And just really quickly before we wrap this up, because we've been, you know, on this for a little while. I just want to say, like, I I totally agree with your assessment and the fact that, you know, she is the type of person, it seems, who is willing to make a lot of sacrifices for the people that she cares about. She wants to see others in her life succeed. How she goes about it is not necessarily, you know, a way that comes off as um, supportive or loving a lot of the time. She has a very, very strange way of showing her love, but 
I think she ultimately does try to do the right thing, hence why she's so prone to these manipulative tactics, because she wants to see things work out for people she cares about. It's just there are other elements, too, where she, in her good intentions, sometimes pushes people down the wrong path, if you will. Um, and, and so... There's no question that she's a good person. My question is just always, you know, okay, but are you actually looking out for the best interests or is this something that you think are the best interests? Well, and I think that's um, true of everyone on the show. For sure. And like, that's for what sure. I think makes this show so interesting and so reflective of human nature is everyone is like this. We're all flawed. We're all That's flawed and we all do what we think is the right thing and oftentimes it's not. And mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you. I think even when Rose thinks she's doing the right thing and thinks she's doing it for the right reason, there is collateral damage. Agreed. So on that note, I think this is a good place for us to transition to our next topic. <laughs> So our next area of discussion is probably going to get very lively because we're going to actually sit down and dive into her relationship with her daughter, which we've talked about as every, in like every episode of the show because I feel like this relationship does touch everything. Really, because, and I say this only because I love Amy Sherman Palladino's work, but as every mother-daughter relationship in every Amy Sherman Palladino show does... Um, I feel like this is probably one of the biggest themes and it is explored in everything. And so with that introduction, Julia, I'm tossing it to you for you to describe your view of the relationship before I respond. All right, here we go. So yes, we do have very, very fundamentally different ideas, but we will keep this civil <laughs> for the sake of our listeners. Oh, every time we've talked about it, it's civil. For the sake of our listeners, we'll keep this civil. But we're also very civil people. Full disclaimer right there. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I just think, and, and this kind of ties into Rose having a weird way of showing her love for people. Sometimes her weird way of showing her love comes across as not being supportive. I alluded to this a little bit before, but when I was talking about how it seems that Rose wants to manipulate Midge in the sense that she either A, wants her to stop doing comedy or B, stop just bringing her personal life into comedy. To me, that feels like Rose is really coming down with a heavy hand either way you slice it because Midge makes her comedy career based on talking about things she knows. And it only makes sense that she talks about things that she knows because she otherwise would be stealing jokes just like Joel did, right? Like a comedy career is shaped based on your personal view of the world and the way that things in your life have happened. So Midge, to be funny, talks about all of the disasters that she experiences with her family. And granted, she's starting to move away from that as she's becoming more of a professional comic. But at the very outset, the way that she makes her name for herself is getting up on stage and, sorry for lack of a better word, bitching about her life. Can you blame her? Not really. I get it. But that's how she starts. Those are her roots. And it seems to me that Rose 
really fundamentally either misunderstands comedy or just cannot support her daughter taking on a professional lifestyle that belongs to the life of a comic because she wasn't completely unsupportive of her role as a makeup counter girl at B. Altman. Um, But she also really wanted Midge to just live her life with a husband, which to me seems a little less than progressive in nature, especially because Midge is willing to be a working woman and do what she needs to do for herself to succeed. She doesn't want to live within the constraints of the patriarchy, and it seems like Rose is a lot more willing to default to those societal norms. She has a different view of the way she operates within the patriarchy and the extent to which she is willing to go to bat for people around her. And yes, she breaks a lot of barriers in a patriarchal society because she's doing a lot of things that, as we talked about, the characteristic housewife would not do. But at the same time, she's a lot more traditional than Midge is. So that's definitely something that we have to acknowledge. Now, when Midge breaks those barriers that her mother is not accustomed to. I think this is the fundamental breaking point of their relationship. And I don't know if they're ever going to have a well-working relationship like they once did before Rose found out about Midge lying about her comedy career and then figuring out what Midge talks about. But I think there are a lot of elements to me that strike me as a lack of support. For instance, the fact that she cannot stomach watching Midge give her performance, even though Midge asserts that she will not be talking about her parents when they're there, um, or talking about topics which are less than kosher, like her sex life, for instance. She says that on stage the night before her parents arrive that, you know, uh, to see her show, that she won't be talking about um, her sex life. Um, So I think there's an element of respect there for her parents, for sure. She doesn't want to make them uncomfortable. But at the same time, like, this is her career and she's doing what she needs to do to succeed. And Rose refuses to accept that career. Um, She needs to be piss drunk in order to be able to watch her perform her set. Um... When Midge asks her mother to, you know, see her comedy show the next night because she does not remember an iota of what she said the night before, you know, Rose is getting ready again to kind of do the same thing, ready for the drinks, um, laying on the martinis really thick. And she has them in front of her. She hasn't drunk. Correct. Because she was preparing for her daughter to get on stage and give the set, which I don't think she approves of. Um, and But I'm saying there is a distinction between the night before when she definitively knew she was going to say something. Right. And got pissed drunk before the show started. And that night where she was only going to start drinking as Mitch talked. That's fair. But I, I also... I'm, I'm just pointing... I'm just pointing out that I do think that there is a substantial difference there in degrees. Sure, sure. Because she was drunk leading up to, like, that she couldn't even, like, before the set right. even started. She the, was pissed drunk. Right. She was never going to remember anything that Mitch said in that set, that first set. She was never going to see and never going to remember because she was three sheets to the wind already. 
if she had started drinking when Midge got on stage, she would have been sober for some of it. That's fair. That's fair. And she does show up, even though she didn't have to show up that night. That's fair. But the thing about that, too, is that when she shows up and, uh, you know, when Midge says that she's foregoing the set that night, it doesn't seem like there's any love lost there. You know, like she doesn't feel particularly heartbroken that she missed watching her daughter perform. Also, you know, I always throw it back to the conversation that they're having in the hallway in 3-1 when they're fighting with Midge uh, and Midge says, I am not a prostitute, I'm a comic. And Rose says, or, you know, is there a difference? They go through the whole, like, spiel. And, um, and so, you know, I feel like even just comparing her daughter to a prostitute you know, that's cruel. That's a harsh reality to to listen to, especially when there are such astronomical differences between a comedy career and and a a career of prostitution. Um, And I think it's the misunderstanding of what Midge does. And I don't think Rose really wants to understand what, what Midge does. I think Rose wants Midge to settle down with a man. And this is the last of my diatribe before we get into the actual 3-8 fight. I think Rose wants Midge to settle down with a man and to just have their life go back to normal. And Midge does not want to do that. So it's viewed as a lack of support. I'm going to break in here and respond before we get to the 3-8 fight because I don't want to have to respond to everything all at once because that's going to be hard for me and it's going to be hard for our viewers or listeners or, you know, the people who listen to us if they exist. Um, So I think you point to a couple of really interesting things and I'm going to start with the last comment you made about the comparison to the prostitute because this is the conversation we have had so many times in person that is, I think, part of the reason why we actually started this podcast. You view it as she's comparing her to a prostitute as a bad thing. I don't disagree with that. I see it more as Rose doesn't understand the difference between selling your body and selling your soul. I think she sees her daughter as a comedian as selling her soul because of what she's seen her daughter do and say. Now, granted, she's seen it through her husband, who saw a particularly bad blue night. I think the crux of Rose refusing to be sober, refusing to listen when she's confronted with it in person, comes down to part of the same reason I think she's pushing for her to be with a man. She is supportive with her of her daughter having a life outside of the home, right? We see her taking care of the grandchildren and taking care of the home and doing all of these things that are of support that would allow her to live a separate life. She is bankrolling her. She is, right, because she's the one who bankrolls, right? She gets whatever she needs to make her life materially comfortable, her children's life materially comfortable. She babysits the kids all the time so Midge can go out and work. Like, she doesn't have a problem with her daughter living an independent life, even if her daughter were married. I think what she sees is someone who wanted to be her, wanted to live her life suddenly rejecting it, violently and viciously, And I think when she says, I don't understand why it's funny to hear people laugh at me on stage, it's really saying, I don't all of a sudden understand why you want to laugh at my life. I think it's truly Rose cannot comprehend why and how Joel leaving one bad man suddenly invalidates this whole life and institution her mother has lived with a good one. 
And I think what Rose is trying to get her daughter is what she has. I think Rose is truly happy with her life. I think Rose is happy. I think she would like more freedom. I think she would like a job. I think that's why she's supportive of her daughter working outside the house. I don't think in any way, shape, or form, Rose has a problem with her being a B. Altman girl and being married. Like, I don't think that that crosses her mind. I think she's unhappy that her daughter's a comedian because it seems like the final throwing everything in her face. She doesn't want to get married again to do this career where she gets up on stage and makes fun of her parents. And let's be... Let's have a real conversation because we've alluded to it about what she does say about her mother. I don't think it's unfair that Rose is upset. We know what Abe saw, which was a set about their sex life where she openly mocks her mother's ability to do things and deal with things just generally, right? That's the part of the set we get. It's not actually, we hear from Abe that he talked, uh, that she talks about his private parts because of the fight that happens in front of the whole family in the third season. But what we see of the set in the second season is more about her mother than it is about her father. And we know that the set about Sophie Lennon that goes so horribly wrong is making fun of her mother in conjunction with Sophie Lennon. I don't think Rose has an unfounded fear of what her daughter's gonna say about her. I think that it's genuine. I think she cannot stand to be the butt of her daughter's joke because I think she can't understand how her daughter has gone from wanting to be her to hating her because I think that's how she sees it. And so I think what she says when she says, you know, is there a difference between comedy and prostitution is prostitution is selling your body. I think she thinks her daughter has sold her soul because how else do you explain this rift? and looking at her like this and judging her like this. Because after Joel leaves, her mother goes from being a wonderful human being to the devil. And I don't think Rose knows how to deal with that. I mean, it's definitely, I I, I see what you're saying, but again, also, I don't know if it's necessarily that her mother goes to being the devil after Joel leaves you know no I'm saying I think Rose sees it that way I'm not saying that that's true I'm saying I think Rose's perspective when she says sure and 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 I get what you're saying but at least I don't think that's the way that you know like Midge per se views it you know what I mean I feel like Midge feels like she's being constrained because the first thing her parents say after Joel blows up her life is get him back you know and like it's what her father says. Right. It's not what her mother says. Her mother asks, is he is she pregnant? <laughs> right. For sure. Which I think is the practicality of Rose less than the judgment of what happened. Right? She asks, what did you do? Which is judgmental. But then her second question is, is she pregnant? Right. Which I understand. But also I feel like <clears throat> at a time where the, this is something that's so sensitive, where your husband has cheated on you. You find out about your husband cheating on you and you're literally taking in that shock and trying to figure out where do I go from here because he walked out on me like she was willing to work through it at the outset too. You can tell because she's practically begging him to stay. He's the one who walks out and then of course the first thing that she hears is something that seems incredibly accusatory I wouldn't take that very well either. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like no matter how well-intentioned you are, if my life has just been blown up 
by my husband, I wouldn't want my parents' criticism. I would want, we are here to support you. And so I can see how that would feel incredibly alienating. And it would would be just piling on to the shit that's already there, just more and more and more on top of what you were already dealing with and struggling with to conceptualize in such a hard period of your life. And so I think it's just the compounding of, of frustration that leads to these blowups that we see because they have a few really um, key blowups in their relationship, right? There's a big blowup in the second season and there's a big blowup in the third season. That's really what we see. Well, there's also the first, there's the one in the temple in the first season. There's the one in Paris in the second and then there's the 3-8 fight, which given our time, we should probably move to the 3-8 fight. Yeah, so moving to that 3-8 fight, because I think this is like perhaps the biggest you know blow up we see um you know there's this fundamental misunderstanding of what is good for midge right like again no matter how well intentioned uh rose really does what rose wants and it seems to me like rose prefers that Midge just go back to living the life of normalcy that she once had. That Midge go back to being a housewife and just catering to the man that's in her life. Hence why she conf- confronts Benjamin in the first place. And does not understand that Midge doesn't want anything to do with that at this point. And see, I see the fight as Midge doesn't understand that Benjamin read the situation wrong. And is taking out some of her anger at herself, at her mother. And I think she's right to say, you don't understand my world. I think that's valid. I think her anger at her mother for for truly being included, I think, is valid. I think what's... I think what the difference in our view of the situation is, is what Rose is actually saying when she says, you're right. I don't understand your life. I don't know how to explain your life. I don't see the difference in this. I don't understand how it's fun to make fun of me or your father. But then she says, but in one area, we're in perfect agreement. I understand how I understand now why you've done what you've done. I understand the need to rebuild your life. I think what she's really saying is I am never going to be able to understand this path you've chosen. I'm never going to understand why you enjoy this. I don't understand why you've made your father and I a part of this. I don't understand why you've decided to make fun of me. I think she's particularly sensitive to the idea of her daughter of all people making her the butt of the joke. But I do think she's saying, look, if what you want to rebuild your life is not with a man, okay. I think that the, I think that ending part, the recognition is that, is just that. I think it's recognition, right? There's one area in which you and I are in perfect agreement, how precarious a woman's life is when it's dependent on the whims of a man. I think she's saying, okay, if you want to do this on your own, okay. I won't understand it, but I won't get in its way. And you see her helping her pack for the tour. She does do that. I will concede. She helps her pack for the tour. And I will be interested to see going forward in the show if we do see a meaningful shift in the way she supports it. Because... I see that fight 
as a meeting of a crossroads. You're right. You're absolutely right. I don't get this. I'll never get it. But do you need me to get it and support it or is actively not standing in the way enough? Because I can support your decision to live your life as your life without supporting you as a comedian. Which even still, like, I feel like comedy is becoming Midge's life, you know? So if you don't support that particular important aspect of her life, because if this becomes her career and if this becomes what she does and chooses not to live her life with a man, chooses to quote unquote sell her soul to comedy, that is her life. So if she doesn't support that fundamental aspect, which is taking up all her time because she's literally leaving her children, she's leaving any possibility that she could be with a man, then why, you know, like, how is there support there? You know, if that is her life, how is there support? I think the difference, and I think this is an interesting view of what does support mean that we're having, right? I think you're saying fundamental substantive support is what you'd expect in that situation from a parent, right? Mm -hmm. That they would support the substance of your life, right? We're both going to be lawyers. I think you're saying for you and for Midge, what she's requiring is her mother to support her career path as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm seeing what Rose say is I would never support you being a lawyer, but I'm going to do everything structurally within my power to make sure you can live this substantive life. And I think Rose sees that as more support than she's ever had, right? Look at where she grew up in Oklahoma, where there was no support for her and no one gave her support for what she wanted to do and who she wanted to be. I think for Rose, structural support is a massive improvement for what she grew up on. I don't think Rose understands that there needs to be substantive support. I think she thinks structural support is all there is because I think she grew up without any. And I think it's a difference in background and a difference in character. And and I'm not and I'm not saying it's right and I'm not saying it's enough support. And we're at the 50 minute mark, so I think we should, you know, move on here, but to looking at the historical anchor of the people in Paris when she was, but I think Really, the conversation underlying how you view 3-8 is what kind of support do you think Midge is asking for? What kind of support do you think Rose is giving? And what do you think they're really, do you really think there's a meeting of the minds? I think there is. I personally. At least on Rose's side. Sure. And I personally have to disagree and don't think that there is because I fundamentally believe that Midge is more the type of person who needs the hands-on. I support you. Here's the decision. Like, here, I agree with your decisions. Please go do what you need to do to be self-sufficient. You know, I'm sorry for, you know, trying to fix your situation that you were in with a man and and making it worse. Um, You know, I I think that's the kind of affirmation that Midge needs. I think Midge is very much an affirmation-heavy type of person. And to not receive that um, is a bit of a blow. So on that note, I think we're in a good place to transition on to something hopefully lighter than that. (laughs) 
area is like in every episode we've done so far for the main five, looking at a historical fact that the show hints at that hasn't been explored. Last week, we talked a little bit about communism and McCarthyism and the Red Scare. We've also talked about LGBTQIA communities at the time, male comedians at the time, and the way that comedy was done. And now we're going to explore post, or excuse me, interwar, so post-World War One, before World War II, France, which we're not sure when exactly Rose Weissman was in Paris. We just know it had to have been sometime after the First World War ended and sometime before she married Abe in 1929, which of course puts a smack dab in the interwar period. We also know, based on the nature of her degree and her skills, she was an art student, either an art history student or an art artist student, which, you know, given the way she takes art classes in the second season, it's implied she's the latter, an artist. So we thought it'd be interesting to talk about the kinds of art that were interested, that were mainly ranging around Paris at the time, name a couple of the artists and what they did, and then kind of look at like what that means about not only the kind of art Rose painted, but what that kind of would mean for her as a person and how she presents herself now versus her past. Like we kind of talked about the radical Abe of the youth. Here's why we think Rose is a bohemian when at least they met. So in the interwar period, some of the big names of people painting at the time, along with other sculpturists and other massive artists, um, were Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, Marc Chagall, Rene Marguerite, and Marc Ernst, which I'm sure a lot of those names are familiar with some of our audience, but not all of the names. I mean, obviously Picasso is. Uh, Chagall is a popular name if you are a Sondheim fan. For those keeping track at home, that is mentioned in Could I Leave You from Follies which is my favorite song from that show. Um, Magritte painted the, the pipe that says, Ce n'est pas un pipe. <laughs> Salvador Dali is the one with the melting clock. And Ernst is the father, is considered one of the fathers of Dadaism. So that kind of indicates to you exactly what kinds of experimental art were in the air at that period of time. You had Dadaism, you had Cubism, you had Surrealism, you have what is considered the early modern period, so early modernism, and you definitely had a lot of art deco, architecture, sculptures, jewelry, things like that, which if you actually pay attention to the way that the show is costumed, I'm just going to shout out Rose's engagement ring is art deco. I did not know that. If you look, her wedding band and her engagement ring look Art Deco. I've not gotten a close enough view on the show to it because they don't zoom in that close, but it looks like the way that her, yeah, just pointing out. I did not know that. That's really good attention to detail. Which also makes me wonder, did she buy her own ring? True. Given how much money she had, did she buy she her own ring? She probably did. That's actually a really good point. I bet she did. Anyway, separate conversation there. Um... So that's kind of the art around the time. So we can assume if Rose is in Paris during the 1920s studying art, she probably was studying this early modernism period. So she's either a surrealist or a cubist or a Dadaist, which means she is totally not a still life painter, which makes the line she says in that third episode of the second season make sense all of a sudden. Because she talks about before she walks in, sees the naked man and passes out, how she spent forever trying to get the texture of a lemon right. And I remember thinking at the time, why would a woman with a bachelor's degree in art not know how to draw a lemon? Because we don't see Rose painting on the show or drawing on the show 
like within the show, but clearly if you have that kind of skill set, you don't necessarily lose it overnight, right? You don't spend hours trying to relearn how to texture a lemon if you were a still life painter. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. I guess she was an art history major, but it would make sense if every time she painted a lemon when she was in Paris, she wasn't actually painting a lemon. It didn't matter what the texture was like. She was a surrealist or a cubist or an early modernist. So basically she was a punk artist which is such an interesting idea. Here was a woman who lived in a quote-unquote Gaelic Hooverville where she did punk art and wore a beret. <laughs> and I feel like that's perfectly fitting to Rose Weissman as a bohemian. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the historical background. And so we can kind of make those assumptions about her art career based on what we see in the show and that historical background. But I think it's such an interesting conversation, Right. It makes a lot more sense that this kind of person with this kind of arts background would be drawn to a rebel, which Abe clearly was at the time. And so, like, it kind of makes that pairing make a little bit more sense. It also is interesting in the way that she presents herself publicly in the way that the house is furnitured. Because she clearly probably is the one who deals with that house. And if you look at some of the set design, it looks very contemporary to the 1950 period, only slightly back a little. It looks like most of it was done in the late 40s, early 50s when we're in the late 50s, mm-hmm. which is interesting. There is not a lot of stuff in that house that isn't traditional looking and classic looking. So at what point did she stop surrounding herself with the art of her era? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, I feel like this kind of pertains a little bit to the conversation we had in the last episode about Abe being kind of put down and needing to have like a more conservative appearance uh if for nothing else than you know what they actually are internally they they externally present themselves as as a pretty conservative household um and so i have to wonder maybe you know whenever it was that they decided to pair up however they decided to pair up whatever the circumstances are that brought them together you know I'm sure they in their younger years kind of lived a lifestyle that was more flourishy and lavish and and to this kind of eccentric end because they really do mesh with one another's eccentricities but was it perhaps motherhood that kind of put that full stop on that you know, willingness to be different, to be unique, to be, uh, you know, to present yourself as um, strange and unusual, I guess, because, you know, I I feel like when you start a family, you take on a different persona to raise your kids in, in a way that you would like them to be raised, right? You don't necessarily want your children to pick up your eccentricities, irrespective of the fact that you have them. Or was it perhaps the fact that there were external pressures, like, for instance, you know, the government going after communism, like we talked about in our Abe episode, which really pushed them to conform to societal expectations. And in turn, with Abe conforming, Rose said, okay, then I too have to give up elements of myself to make this work, to make this normal. So we're not living the life that we once knew and that we're accustomed to, so we don't fall back into our regular pattern of behavior. 
Right. I think it's telling, though, that while their house doesn't seem to reflect that kind of thing, right? From a literature perspective, there was a lot of interesting, I mean, I was an English major in college, and so I'm going to talk briefly about the fact that, like, in the 20s and 30s, particularly in France and in London and Germany, the Weimar Republic era, there was this really interesting literature movement of a lot of experimentalism and stream of consciousness writing and stuff that would later show up in the beat movement kind of started percolating in the interwar period as did a lot of like super pessimistic kind of like literature like because of you know the lost generation and all of the people who came home with the scars of the first world war um and you know the romanticism and the fin de siècle and all of that kind of show back up in the literature of the 1950s and 60s and i i do think it's interesting that some of the writers that have been name-checked on the show that we know that they read are people like Kerouac. Granted, she can't say it. It's Krakowak, which tells you she's only ever read Jack Kerouac. Like, she's she's read on the road and has not watched a single television interview with him. <laughs> you know, because you're, you're likely to mispronounce, hard-to-pronounce words if the first time you were exposed to them is when you were reading them. That's, like, like a fun fact for everybody listening to our podcast that's scientifically proven. So, like, clearly she's only ever read his name, right? Abe, at least, has done a little bit more work than that. But, like, clearly there is this vivid literature world in that household where they do seek out the cutting edge of literature. And I'm wondering if, like, Again, kind of to what we were saying earlier, that the way that they've remained subversive is like what they could do in the privacy of their own selves, right? To your idea of like you hide things from your children and you are a different person in front of your children. Like, is that why he is so attached to his quiet hour where they read? You know, is it? Is it where they escape into this other world where they could be who they once were? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I actually never really thought of that. That that could be part of it. Well, at this point, we have gone over our hour, unfortunately, as much as I would love to talk about these wonderful characters. We do have to wrap it up at some point because you you poor people who listen to us do have other things you have to do with your lives. <laughs> you can't talk about Maisel all day like we do. <laughs> no. Well, we can't even talk about no, we Maisel can't. as much as we want to. <laughs> all right. On that note. Next time, we're finally going to be moving out of our core five characters and expanding into some of this wonderful supporting company. We'll be focusing on love them or hate them, the most, shall we say, polarizing characters on our canvas, Moish and Shirley Maisel. We promise he'll be wearing pants. <laughs> Tune in next time. For now, please follow our show's accounts. We have an Instagram account and a Twitter account for our show at the handle at T-Y and A-N-D G-N pod. And personally, we're individually on Twitter. I'm at the Weissman. And I'm at Maisalis. Neither one of us are Mrs. Maisel. Thank, Thank you. And, and good, good night. night.